recorded a podcast with Rafi Bloom, who is a fundraising fundraiser director of the Fed, which is a local charity, um, and uh, including volunteer and staff. I think we have over eight hundred. Uh, people helping out volunteering staff. So it's, it's quite a big, although he says it's a local charity. Um, and they fundraise, oh, Rafi uh, leads a team which fundraises £2 million a year for this, um, for this charity. So it's very, very interesting to listen to and see how they do what they do. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today's guest is Rafi. He uh, fundraises for the Fed, if I'm not mistaken. Do you want to explain what that uh, role entails? So, yeah, firstly, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm the Director of Fundraising, Marketing and Communications for the FED. Uh, The FED is the largest Jewish social care charity in Greater Manchester. We support one in seven Jewish homes across our city region, around six and a half thousand. One in seven? Yeah, one in seven. I did not realise you support that many. Around six and a half thousand Jewish people who are the most in need and vulnerable uh, in our community um, every year. And in addition to that, um, we provide state-of-the-art care for our for 170 residents at Heathlands Village as well. Which takes up the most money, because I'm sure like the 170 might take up more than the 6,500. Uh, it's a really good question, and the answer is, is that every year we need to raise £2 million uh, to balance our budget. Um, and what's interesting about that is that, it's, it, that yes, part of it goes to, to fund um, a deficit on Heathlands Village care home, we are a charity and the way that it works is that we have some residents who come in and who um, you know, pay for their stay there in full and then we have other residents who um, have reached um, their old age and can't afford to pay for it and as a charity uh, we pay the difference that we receive from the local authority uh, um, that needs to go to make up the cost of their care. Um, roughly I would say it's probably about at the moment 60-40 so about 60% of our deficit goes to support Heathlands Village Care Home. 60%? Yeah, oh. 40% is to support the um, work in the community. However, the work in the community, the one in seven Jewish homes, the six and a half thousand Jewish people, um, that is 95%. 95% of that is from voluntary funding. So we have to go out and raise 95% of that money. We get very, very little support from local authorities, statutory bodies, or, or central government for that sort of work. I know we spoke a bit about this beforehand, but do you want to explain how you fundraise the money? How you get so we are a Manchester Jewish charity and 90% of our money comes from the local community in Manchester um, mostly uh, if we go to larger foundations or some of the uh, larger communal philanthropists for example in London um, often uh, their focus is mostly on funding London or perhaps projects abroad in Israel or other places in Europe Manchester uh, sometimes doesn't always factor in their thinking even though we're the second largest Jewish community uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to say is, is that we're a local charity, we're supporting our local community. We're also not like a lot of the other excellent Jewish charities that operate in Manchester uh, that do fantastic work but are national charities uh, where 90% of their funding comes from the larger volume of donors and the larger numbers of major donors in London. So we can only really rely on, on our community, on our Manchester Jewish community to support us. And we, re- we fundraise um, the money in many different ways. Um, in fundraising there's generally a rule that 
80% of your money comes from 20% of your donors. It's uh, everything is, in life, really. Yeah, which is understandable because we have major donors. We're very, very lucky. We have a lot of people who really um, are incredibly generous and philanthropic and who really understand what it is that we do and why we need to do it and support us. So um, we do major donor uh, canvassing and fundraising. Um, we run events. Uh, we have uh, community appeals. We have people that run challenges for us. Um, people that donate money when they're having a simcha, lots of different ways that, that most charities raise money, but we always try and be uh, inventive, stay ahead of the curve, and um, appreciate that we can't take anything for granted. We can't expect people to support us. We have to continuously tell our story, explain to people why we hope that they will support us, and effectively um, ask people to be our partners, um, not just our donors, but our partners, and to invest in the work that we do. I think it's really important that, that people feel it's a partnership, that we can't do it without them. Uh, and they are, by supporting us, they're doing something really, really good. They're having the opportunity to do something really worthwhile. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, that's quite interesting to see. But how, how does that two million work every every year? Because I'm sure some years you're worried, like, oh, I might not be able to get this money. Like during COVID, how's, how's it then? Do you ever get scared you won't be able to fundraise then? So my wife often says to me, um, are you scared that you have to raise or that you're responsible? Because I don't, you know, we have a, I have a, firm, I have a, a, a group of um, a team that works around me that helps me with it. And we have trustees who, who fundraise for us and other supporters. Um, so she often says to me, does it scare you that you're responsible for raising that sort of money? And my answer is that it, it, raising the money doesn't scare me. What scares me actually and what gets me out of bed every morning is what happens to the people we help if we don't raise that money. That's what drives me on. Um, I'm very lucky that I get to do a job that feeds my stomach and feeds my soul in life. I think if you get to do that, you're a very lucky person. So for me, it's a privilege to be able to do this work. So does it scare us? Are we worried about it? Yes, of course, we don't take anything for granted. During COVID, um, unlike a lot of other charities who scaled back their operation um, because of the work that we do, both um, with families in the community and individuals in the community who you know, in the community, we, we, we support people who suffer from um, a huge uh, range of mental health issues, um, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, self-harm, isolation, loneliness, anxiety, poverty. Um, and during COVID, those issues were, were all heightened and raised. Uh, and so we had to really step up to meet that need, albeit working in a different environment because we couldn't go and visit people in their homes. We had to do it remotely. Um, you adapted. We adapted. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've got 550 volunteers. Uh, who are incredible who are our heroes and you know they went out and did telephone support they did shopping they did befriending they you know all that sort of stuff um and at the same time at heathens village at our care home obviously you know we tragically lost 24 residents to covid uh, during the first wave out of how many um, out of about 170. oh wow it's yeah. a massive proportion it was, it was a lot of people and, and each one was you know they're, they're dear to us you know we, we our offices are there we work in their homes effectively um, so we had to institute, you know, there was a huge amount of extra lay layers of, of, of hygiene and, and cleanliness that we had to institute and, and our staff were working in an environment where really, you know, they were worried for their own safety. You know, we can all remember what it was like in care homes. Mm. So during COVID, we had to adapt how we fundraise. We couldn't hold dinners, um, for example. And at the same time, we needed to raise more money because the demand was, was increasing and we had to spend more money on PPE and we had to spend more money on cleaning and things like that. Um, so actually we did something that was quite inventive, I think. We, um, I bought um, 30 Minutes on a national TV station. 
Um, so a TV station that actually was a shopping network, but you could get it if you had Sky or you had Freeview. And um, we commissioned um, somebody called Tony Walsh, who you might know wrote the poem, This is the Place, that they read on the steps of the town hall after the arena bombing. Um, very, very, you know, real, really talented guy. And he wrote a poem for us about the Fed, but not just about the Fed, about um, the Jewish community of Manchester, how um, our community struggled to get here, how it strived to establish itself, how it has contributed to making Manchester the great city. In 30 that it seconds. Is. Well, not in 30, no, no, in 30 minutes. Sorry, oh, 30, 30 minutes. minutes. Yeah, 30. Um, and um, we, uh, we put that, and then also about the Fed, how the Fed for 150 years. Uh, has been the golden thread in its various incarnations that's looked after the most in need and vulnerable in the community. So when we first started as an organization 150 years ago, we were called the Meat, Bread and Coal Society because that's what they did. They gave meat, bread and coal to poor Jewish families. Um, and he put this together and we filmed it uh, using a very talented uh, young uh, Mancunian Jewish actor called Ashley Margolis. And along with um, a sort of a, a studio session where myself and Mark Cunningham, who's our chief executive, and Bernie Garner, who's our director of community services, and Bernie Yaffe, who's our chair, sat down and spoke about the Fed um, with um, a presenter called Hugh Ferris. Uh, we showed that on national TV for 30 minutes uh, on a given night, in a Sunday night in May, and um, people donated on the back of it. It was effectively like a telethon. How much money did you get from uh, it? I think we raised about £850,000. Oh, wow. Pounds. So, yeah. um, so, so we Why had didn't to, you do that again? Um, because it was something that was done once. It was a unique point in time. At that stage in May of 20, uh, what was it, May of 2020, uh, 2021, uh, people were still at home on a Sunday night. They had nowhere else to go. <laughs> so we told them we were on TV, they watched <laughs> yeah. us, you know, well, it was on YouTube, it was on social media. Um, so we always like to try and do different things. So we had to raise the money and people realized that we were on the front line and that we needed their help more than ever. So people were really generous and, and, and you know, supported us. It's quite inventive, that. Mm. Try. <laughs> was that money mainly from Jews then, or do you reckon? Yeah, I, I mean we support we, we 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 support the Jewish community of Greater Manchester. So mostly our support comes from Jewish people. Yes, we get grants and we get funding from a lot of non-Jewish trusts and foundations who who believe in the work that we do, working with mental health, uh, working with the My Voice project that records the stories of Holocaust survivors, um, supporting our social work teams, for example. Um, uh, we do get that, we do get quite a bit from that, but I would say overwhelmingly the majority of our money comes from Jewish donors. Do you support the youth? Define what you mean by the youth. Yeah. Younger people under 20 or in high, high school, university. So the way that, w the w when when you say do we support them, um, let me no, I mean, I see you. a lot of other projects, I presume you could say support them on the side, but do you have any projects that independently run for them? So we, 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 our, our community services team um, have two arms to them. They have um, something called CAST, which is um, effectively our, our um, community advice and support team, which is effectively our social work team. Um, and they deal with a whole range of different types of people and of ages and individuals and couples and families. And that can be supporting families with youth where um, there's mental health issues, where there's drug addiction, where there's been abuse. Um, we have a volunteer team who um, look after thousands of people every year and that can be, as I said, befriending, it can be going to visit somebody and taking them out for coffee when they have no other human contact in their life every week, suffering from mental health issues and that can be, you know, not necessarily um, teenagers or young, you know, people under the age of 18, but young adults. 
Um, it could be shopping, it could be taking people to hospital appointments, it could be a, a whole range of different activities. Um, we don't operate, we support people with uh, young people with learning difficulties. Uh, we have a children's centre actually that's part of Heathlands Village which is quite unique for a care home um, and that supports often young children, um, so I would say probably primary school children or, or children just going into high school um, who suffer from uh, learning and behavioural uh, difficulties and issues. Uh, and we provide one-to-one -one support for them, we provide um, groups for them, summer camps for them, things like that. We don't operate uh, drop-in centres for children in that respect, that's not the, the, the sphere that we operate in, but what, what we will often do is signpost people to those organisations as well. Um, so we will become involved, you know, I mean I think you know, it's quite well known that there's a, an unfortunate issue with a lot of, our, of the community's youth you know, when it comes to drugs and alcohol and antisocial behaviour and just dropping out of school. And I know there's some great organisations across the spectrum. That was a question spectrum. I was asking if, independently, do you support like... Yeah, well, what we do is, is that we would, just sign, we would signpost to them. How come that's not an area you're going? Or it, that not? It's not something that we're, we're set up really to, to operate in. Um, you can't do everything. And so to run an organ, you know, to run a program like that, you have to have specific staff. You have to have specific premises. It's not a lot of your certain time, and not a lot of your events or a lot of things you do, whether it's mentoring or whether whether it is. Do those not need? No, we we, we 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 offer social work support. This is very different. So the social work support is very different. It's it's supporting families uh, with issues like that. So yeah. we support, for example, we're not a as an example, we're not a charity that focuses exclusively on domestic abuse and violence, but we support a lot of families who suffer from domestic abuse and violence and we work with organisations like Jewish Women's Aid for example and we will help people get resettled and we'll help them provide support and we'll help them access benefits um, so there's lots of things like that that we do um, but you know to run a programme like you're, you're describing you have to have a specific um, premises you have to have specific staff yeah, definitely, you have yeah. to have, it's, it's very different um, and so it's not that's not what we're set up to do I was actually going to ask uh, as a follow up with all the events you do, how, how is it only two million? <clears throat> it sounds like it'll be way more than that. Well, if you think that, um, as I referenced at the beginning, we 90% of our money comes only from the Manchester Jewish community. We're talking about a community of, I think, maybe 35,000 Jewish people. And most of that money um, comes from it. And most of that comes from I mean, That's not a large number of yeah. people. That's, we're not a big community. We're the, big, the second biggest one in the UK, but we're not a big community. So... To raise two million pounds from a community of thirty-five thousand, and, and then the other thing I would say is, is that, um, and it's this is not a secret, but um, we do it. We, we support a large number of people in the Haredi community. Uh, we, we support people across the, the the sort of the religious Jewish spectrum. So we support people. Why who, would that be a secret? Who, no. What I, well, what I was going to go on to say yeah. is, is that is that we don't get much support in return from the Haredi community. Um, so we support a lot of families and a lot of children. Um, with with issues and at the same time we don't get much funding back so what I was yeah. the, the point I was making is that the money that we raise the two million pounds that we raise mostly comes from the um, I would say modern from modern orthodox and the mainstream traditional Jewish community so that even means that we raise the two million pounds from even less people uh, than there are in the total Jewish community of Manchester so um, and obviously people have other donors, have other project, uh, priorities and other projects that they like to support. So we don't you know, expect people to only give to us and to nobody else. But we try very hard. We, we feel we, we reach more people in the community than anybody else. We support more Jewish people than anybody else. And we hope that our donors recognise the fact that, that therefore the need that we have to raise large amounts of money, is they recognise that and their donations are 
you know, commensurate with that need. Uh, it's not just in the Jewish areas as well that you would think of of North and South Manchester that we support, but you know, we mm-hmm. support Jewish people who live in Frodsham and in Rawtonstall and in Warrington and in Littleborough. And no one ever thinks so. And then Marple, places that you wouldn't even think Jewish people live. Um, so there's a huge amount of work that we do across the, the sort of the greater Manchester sort of area. How come you help with the Haredi community? If, I mean, obviously, at some point in the, as a charity, you don't want to give unless you get back. But, I mean, you seem beyond that stage. For you themselves, they're not. No, I if would you, say if they we, don't we, have we, the best we exist, we, exist to support, we exist to support Jewish people no matter where they are or who they are. Yeah. It, we would never turn around and say, uh, we won't support you because you don't donate to us as a group or as a community or you're you know that that's not the way we work we're, we're here to help jewish people it doesn't matter who why don't you, you are think they donate to you um i think that um they they potentially see us as a secular organization perhaps and uh, it's a shame it's something that we would very much like to change um we support jews we support jewish people that's what that's what we exist for you know there's, there's no two ways about it. it doesn't matter who you are where you are uh I would like to think we're we are all one one people we're one kahila um uh but they see us as a secular organization um I think in the past perhaps there's been uh, a bit of mistrust because of the way that we um work with cases of um you know abuse and domestic violence about and speaking like out about them um not not speaking out about them but we uh, as a as a social care organization if there's a case where we are um, supporting a child that's been the victim of sexual abuse we will always um, put the need of that child first we'll always put safeguarding and statutory rights first that's what we have to do um, and um, I think that that's not to say that the reason people don't support us is because they don't want that to happen everybody wants to protect a child um, but I think there's been um, in the past there's been some misconceptions I've heard stories about how well the Fed puts Jewish children with non-Jewish families, for example, um, when they have to be removed from the home. And in truth, that's just not true because we, we don't have that power. We're not the local authority. We, we can't decide um, child Y is tragically being abused and needs to leave the home and we're dafka going to put him with a non-Jewish family that live in Salford. We don't have that power. We, we would never do that anyway, but we can't do that. And so I think there's a, there's some sort of, you know, misconceptions that abound about the Fed which just aren't true. Um, in fact the, the opposite is true. Um, there was a case a number of years ago where there were some children who had to be removed, quite from children who had to be removed at short notice from a, uh, a family um, and the only uh, family that could, be, uh, that, could, that could be found for them was a non-Jewish family. There was no Jewish foster families available and they lived quite far out of the, out of the community and actually one of our non-Jewish social workers took um, kosher food to them every night and, uh, and on the Friday took their Shabbos clothes to them and explained to the foster family about the TV and the microwave and everything. So in what was already a very traumatic circumstance they could have some modicum of normality if you can call that normality. So I think there's, there's some misconceptions that abound uh, about the Fed, um, which is a shame because um, you know we work with a lot of Haredi organisations who, whose main purpose is to safeguard you know people who are at risk, whether that's from mental health, whether that's from substance abuse, whether that's from alcohol abuse, whether that's from you know sexual abuse or domestic abuse, and, and we work very closely with them. and And I think that's the overwhelming theme from our community as a whole. We want to protect the most vulnerable in our community. Um, so you know we we don't, we'd always like to change that, and um, as I said, it will never stop us supporting uh, any Jew, no matter who they are. How, how do you change those misconceptions? 
I think it's by talking to people. It's always by talking to people. It's by, you know, it's by having conversations with them and saying, okay, you know, what are your issues with us? Why do you feel you're unable to support the the life saving, life transforming, life saving work that we do? Uh, you know, I often say, and I really believe it, that if the Fed, if we don't do what we do, then Jewish people in our community will suffer, and in some cases they'll die. Um, as an example. You know, we had a social worker who not so long ago was teaching a young client how to self-harm safely. You know, so when you start, when you start self-harming, it's a bit like drinking. You, you really can never stop. So this social worker was teaching this young person how to cut themselves safely so they didn't harm themselves really badly or, God forbid, even worse. You know, we go home at night. I go home at night, put my head on my pillow and think, okay, you know, how much money did I raise today? What's my marketing plan for next week or next month? And you know, you might go home at night and think, okay, you know, how did this podcast go? Or how am I doing with my marketing agency? She goes home at night, puts her head on a pillow and thinks, I taught a young person how to cut themselves safely. I mean, it, it, you can't even comprehend it. So we support the most vulnerable and in need. And um, we have to talk to people. We have to explain to people what it is that we do, that there's no agenda, that, um, as an organization, we operate to halachic guidelines, you know, our, everything, our care home is, you know, Heathlands is under the Manchester based in, our children's centers actually under MH Hashkocha because of, of the type of Haredi families that we get. Um, you know, everything is done. Um, you know, we, 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 we're not a, a, a traditionally from organization in the sense that we're not a Haredi organization, but we're a Jewish organization and we support Jewish people. So how do we change it? By having conversations. Like this like this or hopefully you know we talk to people privately um, and explaining what it is that we do how we do it why we do it what our overarching you know sort of parameters are and, 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 and you know red lines are in terms of what what we will and won't do but ultimately we exist to support Jewish people it's good when you get to the, get to that level that you have when you when you shorten or you're a smaller charity you don't usually have these problems it's only when you're bigger, so it's a good and bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you even get into this job in the first place? Um, so I was working for, I was the deputy sales director at the Jewish Telegraph. How, uh, let's see, how, did, how do you even get to do that? Um, well, I was involved in sales and in marketing. And that's always interesting, yeah, that sort of that, Yeah, that sort of environment. And I was working at the Jewish Telegraph, and I got quite involved with... Um, I'm not sure if you remember this or not, um, but in 2014, during uh, Suketan, during Operation Protective Edge, the, 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 the large conflict that took place between Israel and Hamas, there was a shop in Manchester called Kedem. Um, a wine shop? No. no. Everybody thought at first <laughs> heard about it was a wine shop. Uh, it was a shop that sold Dead Sea products. Okay. And um, we, we heard, this was the, 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 the war was in full force, and um, we heard that the, the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, was trying to close down the shop because it sold. It was a shop owned by Jewish people and it sold Dead Sea products. And um, this was happening on our doorstep. I mean, there have been, been instances of the BDS movement closing down um, Ahava shop in Brighton and another shop in Covent Garden. And they were trying to do this. They were standing outside the shop. They were intimidating the staff. They were stopping people going in. This was happening on, you know, King Street at the time was Manchester's most upmarket and exclusive shopping street and it was happening two miles away down the road so a group of us got together and said we're not having this 
um, and we organised counter protests outside, we organised rallies, we negotiated with the police, uh, Greater Manchester Police and the local authority to get them banned. It wasn't so easy because of the European Human Rights Act, give people the right to... Did you get them banned? In the end we How did you do that? Um, well, in the end, the, the, well, the European Human Rights Act allows people to protest peacefully wherever they want. It doesn't take into account the fact that they're trying to close down somebody's shop and ruin their livelihood. Additionally, what came out of it was was that there was, because of the nature of the BDS movement, of the boycott, divestment and sanction movement, there was a huge amount of anti-Semitism and hate crime happening outside there. There were people coming and chanting about support for Hitler and gas the Jews and um, voicing support for Hamas, which is a prescribed terrorist organisation. So in the end, the police issued what's called a Section 14, which basically means they had to stop because of antisocial disruption. Uh, but it took us a long time to get to that. And, and in the meantime, in the, in, the, in the two months it took us to get to that point, we organised counter-demonstrations, we stood outside, we argued with them, we debated them, um, we got them arrested, um, and we did. We organised a huge rally against anti-Semitism in Cathedral Gardens uh, that 2,500 people came to. And on the back of that, um, I saw there was an advert, well, the UJIA were recruiting for a fundraiser uh, for their man, for their northwest. Uh, sort of office in Manchester that dealt with Manchester and uh, Liverpool and we had conversations and I went to work for them went to work for them as their senior Northwest fundraiser but because you did their campaign their campaign and it brought you into so else. yeah so I, yeah so I, yeah that took me there and I've always enjoyed you know talking to people it doesn't scare me to ask people for money um, I'm quite happy to do it <laughs> oh um, people are I, very scared I, I enjoy it <laughs> well the worst somebody can say to you is no um, and from there, I was there for four years, uh, and I saw that the Fed were recruiting for a director of fundraising and marketing, and that's yeah. three and a half years on, that's where I still am. It's very interesting to look at that. You see something that really stuck out was that campaign that you did or against, against yeah. that movement to yeah. stop it. It's always like, there's usually that's something that pops out. Yeah, that's it was a bit, you could argue that it was a catalyst, if you will. Um, and I've always been passionate about our community, you know, the Jewish people, the Manchester community as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm a member of the management board of the Jewish Representative Council, so I work with, mm. with Mark and Mark, um, and I'm um, the co-chair of Northwest Friends Mark, of Israel. I, I like to say Mark with a C and Mark, just Mark. Yeah. Well, Mark <laughs> Adelson and Mark Levy. Um, and so I, work, I get to work with some incredible people. Uh, I'm also the co-chair of Northwest Friends of Israel. Yeah. Uh, so for me, community has always been important. It's always been a, a, a massive driver of what I do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about developing the, the next generation of young leaders and young donors. You know, so the type of thing that you guys are doing is really commendable because you're, you know, you're talking to people in the community, you're, you know, you're here, you're living in Manchester. So many of our younger generation have decided to move to London. And for me, you know, Manchester's a great place to live. So I'm really passionate about developing that, that next level of leaders, both lay leaders who run organisations um, and donors as well. That's quite interesting. And just you mentioned that you that you work in different organisations. So one you mentioned with with Mark Lee and Mark Adelson, the Jewish Representative Council. They've both been on the podcast, but right. you mentioned a different one as well. I'm in good company, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you mentioned another one as well. Northwest Friends of Israel. So I saw you did an an event with uh, Mark Mark Adelson, believe it or not, with uh, Christian Wakeford. Yes. That's that you paired up with that yes. organisation. How about what else do you do under that organisation? So Northwest Friends of Israel was formed on the back of the, the protests outside Kevin. Oh, okay. So you started that. Yeah, so we started so that. It was originally fun, yeah. called Manchester Friends of Israel, then it became Northwest Friends of Israel, and uh, it was formed with a, a group of guys, um, Anthony Dennison, Stuart Alien, uh, Bernie Yaffe, who um, is 
you know, Mr. Community, the chair of the Fed, the treasurer of Maccabi, the treasurer of the Rep Council, and a few other people. Mark Levy was involved with it also back in the day, and a few other people like Serge Fagelman and um, Sue Haddon, and some are involved with it now, some aren't. And we, we, we formed it to obviously in the first place to defeat the, the BDS movement outside Kedem, which is hugely anti-Semitic. Um, and from then we established it on three pillars, which was to um, advocate for Israel, combat the BDS and fight anti-Semitism. And from 2014 probably to 2018, you know, invariably there were conflicts that flared up between Israel and Hamas. And we would do different things to support Israel positively in terms of proactively advocating for Israel, explaining, you know, the close working relationship Israel has with the UK or, you know, how Israel is not an apartheid state, countering Israel on campus, all things like that. And then obviously with COVID, a lot of those in-person events stopped. And also a lot of the delegitimization of Israel and the hate against Israel and the, the you know, the anti-Zionism has moved online. So you've had to sort of change shift in terms of what you do. And most of it happens on Twitter. Um, and the organization has, has evolved in that respect. Uh, we'd like to get back to doing more in-person events, but again, when things are quiet in Israel, which hopefully, thank God, is more often than not, um, it's a different type of um, action that's needed than when there's a, a conflict and the community here is being blamed for you know what's going on there. Uh, so that's what North so of Israel does. How do you um, combat that online? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. As, a, as opposed to the in-person? It's really hard. Um, the, the, the truth is, is that the haters, the, the anti-Semites, um, and make no mistake about it, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, um, outnumber those of us who support Israel by a huge margin. Definitely, yeah, especially mean, online on Twitter. Especially online and, and, and on Instagram. You know, if you, if you look back to not this most recent conflict with, with Islamic Jihad, but the last conflict with Hamas, um, you know, you have people like um, Gigi Haddad, on Instagram, yeah. who has you know more followers than there are Jews in the world, you know, and and so it's really really hard. But you have to keep on trying. It's about um, influencing and engaging with politicians and with influencers. And um, Israel has become much better recently at um, over the past few years about getting its message out. Um, transparency, you know, transparency. The IDF is much better at releasing videos of things that happen and showing where rockets are fired from, fired from hospitals and from schools and from homes, things like that. Uh, there was only a, a case in the last conflict just now where they released a video which showed that that when the, the issue of the five children or the family of five that were killed by a rocket was actually killed by an Islamic Jihad rocket. They could trace the arc of the fire and they showed a video of the rocket and you know you could say that it wasn't an Israeli airstrike that killed them and you could prove it. So it's working with politicians and it's working with influencers um, and um, you know again working with politicians like Christian who's a huge friend of the community, you know, a huge friend of Israel, huge friend of the Jewish Jewish people, effectively. Who's also come on the podcast? Like well, yeah. Yeah, definitely all the best people. <laughs> how, a friend of mine. That's good. Um, but how? What specific actions do you take online? Because, for example, me, I I post online quite a lot. For example, on LinkedIn. Yeah. And it's really, really powerful. And we were talking about this before the podcast. How powerful it is to to, to do stuff online. Yeah. So, what is there no, nothing like that that you can have someone that's posting or an account? There is. There's huge. If you look, if you look in this country for for uh, as an example, um, people like Joseph Cohen from the Israel Advocacy Movement, uh, David Collier, who's the most incredible researcher and has has done more to to shine a light on or did more to shine a light on the anti-Semitism of, of, the Cor of Corbyn and the Corbyn supporting movement than anybody else. Um, Joe's videos, are, are Israel advocacy movement, are watched 
millions of times, you know, across the world. Um, if you look at people like Sussex Friends of Israel, which is, you know, was formed actually when there was a, a, an Israeli shop in Brighton, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers uh, across all their platforms. Um, so there is a significant number of people who are getting involved and who do stuff online. Um, and that's the way to do it. It's about posting content. It's about unique content. It's about um, getting people shut down if we can. I mean, we know Twitter is notoriously hard to you know, get rid of Jew hate and anti-Semites. So yeah, lots of different ways to do it. What do you particularly do through your organization online? So you said you deal with well, politicians. Well, mostly, mostly, mostly we, you have different audiences. So for example, Facebook often is your... Um, a bit older, let's just It's say. a bit older and it's also more often your, your home audience. You know, it's, yeah. your, it's your local, it's your home crowd. So with that, it's about sharing information, about sharing news, about sharing stories, about highlighting awareness. Twitter, a bit different. It's a bit different. Twitter is is a horrible place, and and often it's it's about combating it, or it's about highlighting. It, it's it's reacting with politicians and and news readers. I mean, I can remember during the last big conflict that I referenced before. Um, we had a huge amount of spent a huge amount of time engaging with Mark Stone, who at the time was the Sky News correspondent in Israel. He's now in America, and he was reporting stuff. You know, it all started off with Sheikh Jarrah and the, the the Palestinian families that were going to be evicted from a, a home that had been owned by Jews for hundreds of years. And um, we engaged with him, and some of the stuff he was reporting, and some of the stuff that Sky was reporting, and and Mark Austin as the news anchor there, and was just incredibly one-sided. And and we had some success in 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 ensuring that they change some of their narrative. And there are other organizations that where you can sort of, um, to borrow the JLC's phrase, magnify and amplify their message. So you have people like Cameron in, in Israel or other people like that who highlight, who will find errors in news reports, whether that's in print or online in The Guardian or other places, the BBC, and will challenge those organizations to change that narrative. Um, and it's about sort of supporting them and magnifying their voices. There's not many people who could say that they have changed how news well, it, I, I, I think it wasn't really, I, I can't really claim that much credit for it. There are people who do far more than I do. I, I, I do less these days simply because my day job takes up so much of my time. Um, but working together collectively, even though often it feels like, you know, you're pushing against the waves. Um, Especially in th the area. Yeah, there's still, there's still success that's had. And, and, and the other thing as well is, is that we can never stop. No matter who's doing it, no matter whether they're large or small, collectively we have to uh, we have to work together, um, and we can't just give up. Yeah. So we canvass at how you get so little from the government. Well, I think most 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 charities who operate in the voluntary sector um, don't really have that much support from um, even local central authority. government. Yeah. I mean, we work very closely with Berry Council um, on lots of different things, and they, um, for example, during COVID, um, Berry. Salford and Manchester Council commissioned us to provide culturally appropriate COVID messaging to the Jewish community that was more sort of related around um, Pesach or Purim and explaining to people or just reminding people how to behave and things like that. We had um, government messages translated into Yiddish and, and, and delivered to homes that don't have access to social media or TV to be able to see you know, important health messaging. We're working with um, uh, Salford now on a, a, something called Answer Cancer where we're highlighting the importance of screening for different types of cancers. So we do work very closely with the local authorities. We have a great As long as it's under their projects. Well, no, I mean, we, 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 we work closely with them collaboratively. They, they understand that um, the Jewish community in Manchester makes up a large part, especially in Bury and Salford, you know, is a large percentage of, yeah. their, of their population. So they trust us to 
deliver their messages they trust us to um, do work in a way that meets their criteria and their guidelines so we, we work very closely with the local authority um, central government is harder uh, because central government is more centralized and we are a local um, charity so that's that's how we um, you know that's how we operate in that respect if you know people within the central government and it sounds like you do so no way you could uh, help uh, well, ask them for help or no I think uh, I'm not an expert on it but I would imagine that um, central government budgets are set by department and are then given to local authorities if it's something that's needed to be done locally. That, that was the same with the COVID funding, for example. Central government allocated COVID funding to local authorities and local authorities then distributed it. I think it's the same with the uh, heating support that people are getting. It's been sent from central government to local authorities and it's being paid via council tax rebates and things like that. Um, the other thing I, I think that it is important to mention that the Fed does that is something that we're also incredibly proud of is the, is the My Voice project. So My Voice is a, a project that chronicles the whole life stories of Holocaust survivors who settled in Greater Manchester after the war. And what's unique about it is that unlike a lot of um, projects that record the experiences of survivors that just focus on their experiences in the, you know, during the war in concentration in death camps or as hidden children, this project um, takes a survivor and they write their whole life story. So their life before the war, wherever they lived, their life during the war, and then as they came to Manchester, settled down, made lives for themselves, uh, built families, built careers, contributed to the city of Manchester. Um, and to date, we've published 32 books. Oh, that's quite a lot. And we've got 12 more in production. And it's How many most, people read each book? Well, at the moment, the, the books are produced... In most cases, when the survivors write these books, it's the first time they've ever spoken about their story, and it can sometimes be at the age of 85 or 90. They've never told their story before. So it's really <coughs> important that they uh, write the story. And what's unique about it, because you might say, how does a sort of Holocaust uh, uh, memorial chronicling project sit within a Jewish social care charity? Uh, and the answer is, is that it first started because we had a, a resident at Heathlands who came to Juliet Pierce, who's our volunteer department manager, and said, please help me tell my story before I die. Mm. And we wrote her life story. And it evolved from there so much that what happens is, is that each survivor has a trained volunteer who will sit with them, who will, the survivor will tell their story, it's all recorded, it's then transcribed, it's then edited. And because in most cases it's the first time they're telling it, the trauma that it elicits not just with the survivor but often with the family who had no idea that their parent or their grandparent went through these horrific experiences uh, we have the capacity as social work teams and as a volunteering team and with our trained volunteers to sort of you know provide the support that's needed and uh, it's the, the the project won the queen's award for voluntary service two years ago which is effectively like an mbe for for organizations uh, it's been recognised by Yad Vashem for its contribution. Specifically for this project. Specifically for this project. Um, Andy Burnham is a huge supporter of it. Um, we have schools now who are using some of the stories as the basis for their history syllabus for, say, year 10. Uh, we had the most incredible experience the other day. There's, um, I went to Treblinka two weeks ago uh, with um, one of our... Oh, he's a dear friend of mine, a, a Holocaust survivor called Ike Altman. Uh, who lives in Whitefield, who's 94 years old. He was one of the Windermere children who came over here after the war. If you've heard of the Windermere pro project, that they brought 700-odd Jewish children 
survivors of the, of the Holocaust to Windermere for three months. People like Sam Laskier were there, um, Ben Healthcott, people like that. Um, and he survived, Ike survived uh, four concentration camps, four, four death camps and a death march, Blizzard, Auschwitz-Birkenau, Buchenwald and Theresienstadt. But um, when he faced selection in the square of his hometown in 1942, his mother, his nine-year-old brother and his 14-year-old sister were sent straight to Treblinka where they were murdered mm -hmm. upon arrival. The Treblinka, they were murdering 12,000 Jews a day for three years, you know, 900,000 people they killed there, 900,000 Jews. So he wanted to go back, he wanted to go to Treblinka at the age of 94 to say Kaddish for his mother, his brother and his sister. So I went with him. Um, but he had never told his story until he was about 89. And his family had really no idea of what he'd been through. So it's, it's, it's a massively important project. Um, and at the moment, the books are written and they're given to family members and friends as it's a more record. Local. As a record, yeah. I mean, they're in the, mm. they're in the Yad Vashem Library. They're all in the Yad Vashem Library in Yerushalayim. They're now going into the Israel National Library. Um, we're going to be part of an exhibition um, with the Imperial War Museum North and the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust at, at the IWM North um, in January. Um, but they are starting to be used now by schools as uh, their, their, their sort of a syllabus for, for their curriculum. And, and the reason why I mentioned Ike was, was that we had, there's a, there's a high school in Trafford called the Wellington High School. And we received a letter for Ike um, a few weeks ago from a 14 year old Ukrainian refugee called Sophia, who is living here by herself with a family. And she wrote this letter in Ukrainian to Ike to say that she's read his book, she found the story incredibly powerful, how he survived the Nazi horrors, how he wrote about them, um, how he was so brave to come through it. And then she said, in my 14 years, I've experienced war twice. And she said, can I ask you, do you hate all Germans? And it's a question that Ike gets asked often. I've been with him many times when he's been asked it. And he, he says, no, he says, I don't hate all Germans because if I hated all Germans, I'd be as bad as the Nazis. And you could see that what this very, very articulate young girl was trying to do was get a sense of direction over how she should react to Russians. So we're going to arrange for them to meet. Um, and, you know, I think she can get a lot of sort of um, positivity and hope from Ike's story. So the My Voice project is hugely important. Um, as I said, we've still got 12 books. And of course, it's a bit of a race against time because mm. You know the survivors are getting older. Also, there's more Holocaust deniers, and there's more Holocaust deniers as well. So it's hugely important. And and what a lot of the survivors do, want to do is they want to go and tell their story. They want to go and speak. You know, so I, I've been with Ike and, and other survivors to Manchester Grammar to Holocaust Memorial Day events, where they you know to Yom Hashoah, the community communal Yom Hashoah here, where they tell their stories, and, and other and other survivors do it. And sometimes they're survivors. Sometimes they are people who came here on the Kinder transport. Sometimes they are people that were hidden children. So they spent the whole war hidden by a Catholic family in France or in Holland or somewhere like that. Each one is a unique story. Each one is a living, breathing piece of Jewish history. So it's, it's a project that we're really proud of. It's very unique. Um, and what's particular about it is it's, it's survivors from the Northwest. So it's survivors from our city region who've come here. Um, and that's why I think people like Andy Burnham and other people um, are such huge supporters of it because it is telling our local city, you know, 
Manchester, Greater Manchester, about these amazing people that live within our midst and, and, and you know, the horrors of, of the Holocaust and the education, educational lessons that can be learned from them. And these are living witnesses, you know, in time, they won't be with us because that's just yeah. the nature of life. So it's so important that as often as possible, they go out and tell their story and we share their story. Uh, so that's something as well that as, as the Fed as an organization, we're, we're hugely proud of. Do you think this, this project could be one of your longest lasting projects? Well, I think what will happen to it is, is that obviously we're still writing books. There are still survivors, you know, thank God who are alive, who want to tell their story. Um, obviously the older they get, the, the more sadly their memory fades. So it's really important to do it sooner rather than later. But the next phase of it will be an educational phase. So it will be um, sharing those books with high schools where they can be used as, a, as part of the history curriculum on the Holocaust. Um, it will be uh, something we're going to launch is something called the Guardian Project, where we're going to ask young people um, two, two people per, per storyteller, per survivor to learn their story, to understand mm. their story and then be the people who go out in the future and tell the story of such and such a survivor so you're pairing up yeah. a, a survivor with, with a young, younger person so you know an 18, 19, 20 year old to tell that story which I think again is really powerful. And that person will go around telling people yeah. okay. so we often get asked by different organisations, by local authority, by the police, by schools, by universities, by football clubs, you know will you come and do Holocaust awareness because so many people either haven't heard of it, unbelievably, or if they have, they Crazy. know uh, you know a small amount of it. But if you have somebody sitting in front of you who says, you know, I was at Birkenau, and I can remember seeing the chimneys belching flames day and night, and I can remember and still smell the stench of burning flesh. You know, that's a very very powerful thing to hear from somebody who was yeah. there. You can't turn around and say, "Well, it didn't happen." Well, yeah. it did. I'm telling you, yeah. I was there. So it's hugely hugely impactful that we do that, and we and we do more of that as well. And we're really really proud of it. So that's something that again, it, it's something that sits within the Fed, and it's something that that will continue to. How work long on. has that project been about? Been going on now for about five. I would say just over five years. Oh, quite a while. Then. Yeah, quite a while. Um, but you know each book takes a long time to produce you've got to hear the whole life story it's got to be edited it, there's got to be pictures that have got to be found it's got to be put together you know and we've we've become more um sort of um uh, Systemized it, and yeah we've sort of become more experienced at doing it in the first instances the books were quite small and then you know the latest book that mm -hmm. i've just seen the latest draft i mean it, it's a book that, you know it, it's a big book there's a lot to put in there and people want to tell their story and it's a you know and also it's it's a it really is a piece of, of history for their families, for their children, for their grandchildren, and for future generations, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. This is, this is who my grandfather or grandmother was. So it, it's a hugely important uh, project. I'm actually quite amazed that you've done so many in five years, especially to do, but I know how long, and I've written a lot of essays, and it doesn't, it's not quick with all the editing, all the back Well, we have, we have an incredible team of volunteers, and it was these volunteers that won the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service. And they were the ones that, uh, you know, so we have a trained volunteer who sits, you know, a befriender who sits mm. with the survivor, will listen to the story. It's all recorded. We have a company who uh, very kindly, um, they, they, they work in transcription. So they transcribe the words into, w the, the words into written words mm. for us. Um, and then we have editors who, who edit it. And it's a lot of work, but um, it, it really is. It's, it's a holy mission for is us. Is everyone volunteers then? We have uh, we have uh, two we have two full time staff or um, you know or part time okay. staff they don't work full time uh, and then we have yeah we have fifty volunteers fifty yeah I mean as an organisation the Fed has five hundred and fifty volunteers 
um, people that, as I said, I explained earlier, who give their time for a whole range of different things. But my voice has fifty volunteers. How how many uh, how how many staff do you have in the whole fed? We employ three hundred and fifty staff. Oh, so, oh, wow, so there's way more. Yeah, yeah because we run a care home. Yeah. So when you think about the number of people that are needed to run a care home for you know between 150 and 170 people. Uh, how do you get the proportions that you have way more volunteers? Like, because most uh, charities have in some sort of arena that you're not that you're doing, not the elder sector, but more everything else that you're doing, like mental health, usually have so many more volunteers than paid staff. Well, when you run a care home and you're looking That's what I'm saying, that, one, that one's people, very different. You know, yeah. So I would say that probably you know the vast majority of our staff work in the care home. I mean, if you think about it, you've got... 150 to 170 residents you've got carers you've got nurses you've got porters you've got people cooking three meals a day you've got people working in the laundry you've got maintenance you've got you know front desk staff you've got admission staff that takes up a, a huge amount you know that's quite labor intensive it's not one-to-one -one care but it's there's a lot of you know staff you know per resident or per you know it, it, there's a lot of it, sort of mass number of staff there and then obviously on the community side, we have less people who work on the community side who actually look after far more people in the community than we do in Heathlands, but it's a different type yeah. of care. So, you know, we're looking after six and a half thousand Jewish people in the wider community and um, what, probably 150 to 170 in Heathlands. Um, it was 1,589 homes we supported last year across Greater Manchester, which is roughly one in seven. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, do you think that's a good point to end up? Yeah, I think great. so. Th thanks so much for coming on, Rafi. Thank you. Yeah, that was really interesting.